0: Hello and welcome. I'm Mark Wakeworth and you're listening to Tales of the Sea. The series is my chance to share some of my favorite stories and true life adventures inspired by the sea. Along the way, we'll also hear from some of the participants as well as individuals who are experts working hard to preserve this amazing resource. I grew up boating on the lakes in Michigan and I learned to sail in the waters of Long Island Sound in New York State. I can honestly say being on the water is truly my happy place. Today, I want to talk about why men fish, why we are so impressed with big fish, and finally, what inspired Herman Melville to write about the biggest whale ever seen. Many have suggested there's something primal in the act of fishing, man versus nature and all that. There's a well-known quote from the 31st President of the United States, Herbert Hoover, an avid fisherman. All men are equal before fish. Hoover explained it this way. To go fishing, he said, is the chance to wash one's soul with pure air. It brings meekness and inspiration from the decency of nature, charity toward tackle-makers, patience toward fish, a mockery of prophets and egos. A fisherman must be of contemplative mind, for it is often a long time between bites. He must be, by nature, an optimist. Hoover's words certainly ring true to me. You don't have to be a big, brawny, or necessarily brainy guy to fish. My dad used to remind me of the old adage that uh, fishing is extended periods of boredom followed by bouts of excitement. You just need to be patient, he used to tell me, and have a little bit of optimism and luck. There are women, of course, who like to fish, uh, like American Sarah C. Farrington, who held fishing records for broadbill shark catches off the coast of south america she wrote the book women can fish in 1951 there's also betty bauman who won the woman of the year in sports fishing and is nominated for the 2023 woman who makes waves award for her work in florida helping to save sharks and rays who are accidentally hooked to help get them safely back into the water Another woman, Jada Holt, landed a 1,305-pound blue marlin in 2019 off the coast of Brazil in just under 15 minutes. Amazing. It wasn't even Jada Holt's first record. When she was 10 years old in Hawaii, she caught a then-record-setting fish. Still, today, sport and recreation figures, about 30% of those buying fishing licenses are women leaving the rest, about 70%, to the men. Today, we're gonna to be talking about men, fish, and Moby Dick, aka the big fish. Make no mistake, there are some hefty records out there. On June 18, 2011, a 143 pound monster catfish was hauled in at Bugs Island Lake in Virginia. In South Australia in 1959, a guy landed a 2,664-pound great white shark. That's about the weight of a small car. In 1986, in New York, the largest fish ever to be caught with rod and reel weighed in at 3,427 pounds. This was also a great white shark. That's about the weight of an SUV. A bluefin tuna off the coast of Nova Scotia was caught with rod and reel. It weighed in at 1,496 pounds and was over 10 feet long. Fishermen in Brazil brought in a 1,402-pound blue marlin, but an even bigger haul was made in Oahu in 1970, a blue marlin that weighed in at over 1,800 pounds. Fish historians think that the largest fish ever to live on Earth swam in the seas during the Pliocene era, meaning about 3 to 5 million years ago. It was a megalodon, a predatory shark over 60 feet long and had a mouth gap over 6 feet wide. Megalodon, by the way, means big tooth. The longest megalodon tooth ever found is over 7 inches long and about 7 inches wide. That's a tooth as big as a grown man's hand, Each tooth comes to a really pointed peak, and its razor-sharp peak can tear its prey in half. There have been tales of megalodon sharks over 100 feet long, but it's all hard to prove because giant sharks have cartilaginous bodies, meaning that they don't fossilize. Instead, they sort of disintegrate. After the shark dies and the body dissolves, their teeth, however, fall to the bottom of the ocean. Like most teeth, sharks' teeth are made of dentin, a very hard, calcified tissue, harder than bone. The sharks' teeth at the bottom of the ocean are eventually covered in sediment, and they fossilize. Megalodon teeth have been found on every continent on Earth, with the exception of the Arctic and Antarctic. Of course, not all fish are cartilaginous. The biggest bony fish ever discovered is nicknamed leeds, that's short for Leedsichthys problematicus, a ray-finned plankton-eating fish that lived during the Jurassic times, about 165 million years ago. Skeletal findings suggest it was about 55 feet long and might have weighed up to 10,000 pounds. Well, that's the weight of a large African elephant. What about the big fish that have become legendary? And part of our literary mindset, what about Moby Dick? Was Herman Melville's sperm whale based on a real sea creature? Some think it was inspired by Mocha Dick, an albina sperm whale that often hung out near Mocha Island off the coast in South America near Chile, who became infamous for its attacks on ships. It was reported to be 70 feet long, its head covered in barnacles, Sperm whales are highly prized because they have a spermaceti organ that sits at the top of their heads. The organ contains a thick liquid. Whalers, after capturing and killing the mammal, would cut the head in half and bale the substance out by the bucketful. As soon as it came in contact with the air, the liquid would oxidize and thicken into a waxy substance. The candles made from it were considered superior and it was also coveted as a super-lubricant. By the late 1800s, less expensive alternatives like petroleum replaced the use of spermaceti, and with the international ban on whaling in 1987, this sperm oil was no longer legally sold. Mocha Dick, with its large cache of sperm oil, was eventually caught, but not until it had faced, outsmarted, and beaten over 100 ships. Herman Melville had no doubt read about Mocha Dick, and he had also worked on whaling ships, and was very affected, like most New Englanders were, by the tragedy of the whaling ship Essex, whose home port was on Nantucket Island in Massachusetts. Melville grew up hearing the story of the 87-foot-long ship that had a reputation of being a lucky ship, because most of its whaling expeditions had been very profitable. The captain of the Essex in 1820 was a 29-year-old named George Pollard, the youngest man ever to command a whaling ship. Most of his multiracial crew were also young men, the youngest being a 14-year-old cabin boy. Off the coast of South America, the ship came under attack by a huge sperm whale, reported to be nearly as long as the ship itself. Following a fatal blow to the bow, the Essex rolled on her side, and two days later, finally sank. The ship was thousands of miles from the coast, and the 21-man crew were forced to make for land in the ship's three surviving whaleboats. The men suffered severe dehydration, starvation, and exposure on the open ocean, and the survivors eventually resorted to eating the bodies of the crewmen who had died. When that proved insufficient, members of the crew drew lots to determine who they would sacrifice so that the others could live. Seven crew members were cannibalized before eight survivors were rescued. One of those survivors, Owen Chase, returned to Nantucket Island and wrote a chronicle of that ill-fated voyage. Melville, an avid reader and lover of adventure and the sea, was deeply affected by that tale. Melville took his first voyage across the Atlantic as a cabin boy on a merchant ship and then signed on to a whaling ship in 1841. Now think about it. You sign on to a whaling ship. That's where you eat and sleep and plan. Once a whale is spotted, smaller, much flimsier open whale boats are then launched. There might be six to eight sailors in each rig, armed with only handheld harpoons and lances. They pitted themselves against whales that could weigh up to 80 tons and measure over 60 feet in length. It was truly a man-against-whale battle, and there were many men who did not survive. After a year and a half, when conditions became untenable, Melville, with a few other members of the crew, deserted that ship, only to be captured by cannibals in the Marquesas Island. (coughs) Yeah, cannibals. This was another adventure for Melville. Luckily, the cannibals did not find the young man appetizing, and after about a month he was rescued by another whaling vessel, then traveled to Tahiti, where he joined in a mutiny, and was jailed. He got out of jail by agreeing to work as a harpooner in the waters near Hawaii. By 1844, he had had enough of whaling. And he took a job as a bookkeeper in Honolulu. And he joined the U.S. Navy. This finally took him home to Massachusetts, where he decided to write about his experiences. His work was popular. His first three books gained him praise and notoriety, and he thought his writing career had taken off. It was time for him to take up his most challenging tale, Moby Dick, a literary tribute to the whaling industry and one man's need to conquer and kill a great whale. In October 1851, The Whale, retitled later as Moby Dick, was published in London. The story centers around the narrator Ishmael, a sailor on the whale ship Pequod. The ship's captain, Ahab, has lost his leg to Moby Dick on a previous expedition, and he is motivated to the point of derangement by revenge for the whale's life. Melville spun the tale of Moby Dick but was also commenting on the human condition and what he saw as the reckless expansion of the American Republic. Melville wrote, All men live enveloped in whale lines. All are born with halters around their necks. But it is only when caught in the swift, sudden turn of death that mortals realize the silent, subtle, ever-present perils of life. Ishmael, the narrator, notes... For there is no folly of the beast of the earth, which is not infinitely outdone by the madness of men. Melville incorporated thoughts about religion, science, human limitations, and truth versus myth in the amazing adventure story about man, the sea, and its challenges. As Captain Ahab descended into madness, he wrote, Consider the subtleness of the sea how its most dreaded creatures glide under water and are treacherously hidden beneath the loveliest tints of azure. Consider also the universal cannibalism of the sea, how the creatures prey upon each other, carrying on eternal war since the world began. When Captain Ahab is face to face with the great white whale, Melville has him promising, To the last I grapple with thee. From hell's heart I stab at thee. For hate's sake I spit my last breath at thee. Despite Melville's high expectations for Moby Dick, literary critics, for the most part, disregarded the novel. The American West had captured everyone's imagination, and Tales of the Sea had taken a back seat. Melville became despondent wrote a few books and short stories, but they did not catch on. He took on various day jobs, and starting in the 1860s, he became a customs inspector on the New York City docks. But he continued to write poetry every day, many about his love and experiences on the sea. One of my favorites is a short piece that seems to speak of love and respect for the sea. Melville writes, Healed of my hurt, I laud the inhuman sea, yea, bless the angels for that there convene, for healed I am even by the pitiless depth distilled in wholesome dew, named rose marine. Today, of course, Moby Dick is considered a masterpiece and deservedly so. The movie adaptation by John Huston, starring Gregory Peck, is a scorcher and a worthy watch. It was made in 1956, long before today's special effects were available, and Captain Ahab and the Whale's Battle is truly remarkable. Who wins? Spoiler alert, the whale. Most of us don't go hunting for giant fish. We're happy with catching a good-sized bass or brown trout. That makes its weight set by the Game Fishing Association. Here in Maine, that's 14 inches for a brown trout, with a limit of two on lakes, and the same goes for lake salmon. In streams, the minimum size drops to 6 inches. That's 6 inches, not 60 feet. It's been said that some men fish their whole lives without realizing it's not fish they're after. But why, after all, analyze the simple pleasure... (laughs) To me, fishing is a kind of metaphor for a good life. You go out, you try your best, you have days that are successful, you get a good catch, and then those days when you get skunked. But you're always grateful for the sound of the water, the freshness of the breeze, and the chance to cast just one more time in search of that big fish. That ends this episode of Tales of the Sea. I'm Mark Winkworth, and if you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Amazon, or wherever you stream your favorite stories. Thanks for listening.